Ethics of the Naval Warrior. I'm your host, Michael Sears, at the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership. My guest today is an associate professor in the Leadership Ethics and Law Department at the Naval Academy. His academic interests include professional ethics, just war theory, moral pluralism, theological ethics, and militant jihadism. He has numerous publications, including his most recent book, The Moral Status of Combatants, A New Theory of Justice. Welcome, Professor Michael Skirker. Thank you. Glad to be here. Michael, this is going to be a, a very rich session here because we're talking about interrogation and torture on a couple of different levels. Number one, on the moral level, and then number two, on the legal level. Let me kind of set the stage a little bit and talk about what I know about the legalities here, but I'm going to talk specifically to U.S. citizens, and that's captured in the U.S. Constitution, Fifth and Sixth Amendment, what happens when a criminal suspect is uh, is in custody. I think that's relatively well known to most of our audience, but let me let me hand this over to you to talk about the legal implications of interrogation and torture. Right. So according to the Geneva Conventions, it's very clear that torture is prohibited for all different types of detainees, whether they're POWs or refugees or criminal suspects. It doesn't matter who you are, no matter what your status, if you are detained by some power, you may not be tortured. And torture is defined as severe mental or physical suffering. There's no wiggle room. There's no what ifs. There's no buts. You, you just can't do it. In terms of U.S. law, there, there's similar laws, of course, that the torture is prohibited. But what's interesting in the U.S. legal system is that any kind of confession that's procured through torture or anything that's close to torture has to be thrown out. And the, the famous legal dictum is that fruit from the poison tree is also poisoned. So even if, a, let's say, a detective garnered a truthful confession after torturing a suspect, that could not be used because it's tainted. The idea is that the state may not resort to this kind of technique. And also, of course, anything produced through force is going to be highly unreliable. So we'll get to the operational aspects of using information under torture uh, and I want to talk about torture for a second, but let me let me ask you your sense of, and I might say this wrong, the classifications of those people. In the U.S., it would be a criminal suspect. I've heard you talk about POWs before. Give me a little bit of data on the concept of an irregular combatant. What is that? Yeah, sure. So according to international law, if you're the member of a... Um, state military, a conventional combatant, and you're captured, you would be considered a prisoner of war. And then there's a long list of privileges that you're entitled to. They boil down to two basic principles, that you are immune from legal prosecution for ordinary combat actions, and you may not be punished in detention. And so you have to be held in conditions that are similar to those enjoyed by the detaining power's own troops. Now, if you are not a prisoner of war and you've committed some kind of act of violence that is upsetting to the detaining power, you are most likely a regular criminal, that you are liable to prosecution, you're liable to punishment in detention. And so what typically happens is that if a detaining power is operating overseas, 
a person who commits violence of some sort, whether it's it's ordinary, it's, let's say carjacking or rape or something like that, or if it's violence directed at military actors in the manner of, a, of an insurgent, then that person could be handed over to local law enforcement for prosecution or could be prosecuted by the detaining power in a military tribunal in which the person would get a lawyer, usually a military lawyer, and be subject to prosecution and detention. Now, who falls into that category? As I said, any kind of ordinary criminal that we wouldn't question whether he's a criminal or not, a car thief, a rapist, etc., but then also members of organized armed groups that are engaging in what looks like military level of violence. Now, organized armed groups in some cases can be privileged, meaning that if they look and act like regular soldiers, they are fighting for a political cause, they are operating in uniform or identifying emblem, they're organized in hierarchical platoons or organized or other groups, they have commanders responsible for discipline, they obey the laws and customs of war, and they carry their arms in the open. If they do all those things, they ought to be eligible for POW privileges. The idea being that they are effectively combatants and they're not criminals. Most organized armed groups don't meet those criteria, and so they might be called unprivileged belligerents or unlawful combatants. These are members of, let's say, Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Al-Shabaab or so on. And again, those folks can be prosecuted and, and put into jail. These people cannot be tortured. Again, no one can be tortured under the law and under morality too. No one can be tortured because of the inherent dignity of all human beings. You know, you talk, you gave us some bright line tests here, but what if I stop a vehicle that might have some uh, people that I suspect are being human trafficked uh, and the driver and uh, the, the shotgun guy starts spouting testimonials about some concept, some political such and such? How do I parse that? Right. So obviously, as an operator on the ground, it's not for you to parse that. You would detain the person and hand him over to authorities. And there would certainly be a JAG at some point involved. There might be local law enforcement involved at some point. But on principle, the idea that you can't just start committing acts of violence because you've got big ideas, whether they're political ideas or religious ideas. There are very few moral reasons for permissible violence. And one broad category is self-defense. We all understand that. If it's organized offensive violence, you're either the, the member of a military obeying the orders of a politician, and that's one way in which your violence can be in principle permissible. Or if you're a sub-state group, you need to have concrete connections with a community whether you control territory and administer governmental type services towards those people, or if you're in an urban environment and you don't control territory, you at least need clear, concrete connections. Like you've been voted to represent some community that's not being represented by the central government, that is perhaps an oppressed group. 
you can't just decide for yourself that you're going to represent some group or fight for some cause and start shooting people. You can't do that and expect other people to say, oh, okay, that's fine. You're a freedom fighter. God bless you. You can't expect that. All right. So let's say that you're a young lieutenant or an ensign or a JG, and you're sitting there and you realize this guy's a criminal. This person is a criminal. From a moral or human rights standpoint, what are my obligations or what are my opportunities to get information or, or, or whatever? Mm-hmm. Right. So you can expose this person to non-coercive interrogation. And what that means is interrogation that relies on various kinds of verbal gambits, various verbal strategies of engaging a person. And what the last 10 years of very focused research has shown is that there are certain things that work pretty regularly and consistently with most people and get fuller and complete narrative responses than any kind of force. And the gold standard is what one wants to do is develop rapport with the suspect or detainee, a kind of working respectful relationship between interrogator and interrogatee where they connect on some level and begin to converse. What's somewhat counterintuitive, but then makes sense once you think about it, is that people, most people want to talk. They want to explain their rationales for behavior particularly members of organized armed groups, they're typically proud of what they're doing. They have a political or religious philosophy that they want to communicate. They want to impress on you. And like people all around the world, people like to brag about their accomplishments. So it's often not difficult to get somebody talking. And sometimes you can provoke them by flattering them, sometimes by challenging them a bit, sometimes by dismissing their accomplishments. And then whether out of pride or umbrage, they will often then expansively explain to you what exactly occurred and why they did it. And so it's not actually that hard for a trained interrogator to get people to speak voluminously, even speaking in a self-incriminating fashion. But what we have found is that being aggressive with somebody, shouting at them, demeaning them, disrespecting them, or using any kind of force typically makes people clam up. They become resentful and angry and see themselves as in competition with the interrogator. And there's a sense of, okay, well, if you're going to act that way, I'm not going to cooperate with you. I'm not going to give you anything. So as a junior officer over the next several years, the reality is that we might bump into situations like this. But last question here, you're not necessarily going to be that interrogator, but how do you know who is the person who's legitimate to hand that suspect over to? Is it a person with you know, dark sunglasses who kind of lurks in the back of the room, or is it a uh, foreign national government or a police organization? How do you know? Yeah, so it's going to vary based on context. You know, If you're in a dynamic, kinetic activity, uh, you're, if you're in the middle of a battle, you may be fighting a group that wears uniforms and is heavily armed, or you might be fighting people who are dressed in jeans and khakis and, and, and sweatpants and, and drop their pistols as soon as they're seen. In that latter kind of environment, you might have to cast a wider net. And you might know that all of your opponents have 
certain characteristics, you know, whether they're members of a certain ethnic group or they dress a certain way. Um, there are various things you might look for. And if you're in a really desperate situation, you'll probably be, you'll err on the side of collecting more people. And if you're in a less desperate situation, you'll probably be more discriminant and more careful about whom you detain and bring in for questioning. It also depends, again, on the environment. If it's a kinetic environment, you might grab everybody you see. You know, you're receiving mortar fire from a compound. You go in the compound. You might grab all fighting age males and detain them and question them in situ or bring them back to your fob to question them. But if you are just searching for a particular guy who you think is a bomb maker, you're not going to detain everybody on the block. You certainly should not do so. You're going to be much more careful, and much more discriminate. And also, if you're in that kind of situation, it's not going to be the average lieutenant doing the search. You're going to have a more seasoned investigator, I would hope, looking for a particular person. Professor Michael Skirker, The Moral Status of Combatants, A New Theory of Justice. And I say the book again because this is a very dense but rich environment that I would suggest we all go and look at much more. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Stockdale Minute, a series of podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership at the United States Naval Academy. You can hear more podcasts at stockdalecenter.com slash podcasts.